Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our Bible Ponder for this week. We're continuing our steady march through the last couple days of Jesus's life as depicted in the Gospel of Luke. And we are picking up here right when um, Jesus has been arrested. And so most of these stories that we're going to, to kind of talk about are depicted in other Gospels as well, but we're going to specifically focus on the way that they um, go in Luke, because um, there are a couple of ways to approach um, the, the stories of the Bible that um, have overlap in other Gospels. Um, we can compare them against each other. And there are things you can learn from this uh, way of biblical studies where you um, take a passage in, say, Matthew, and you hold it up to Luke, or you hold it up to Mark, or you hold up all three, if, if there's one in all three, or even all four, um, for those stories that are in all four. And you look for similarities and differences, and then you look for um, maybe reasons why there are differences. Maybe one gospel has more detail than another. Maybe one changes the order of events slightly, or whatever the case may be or maybe Matthew and Luke, as is sometimes the case, have similar details and Mark is different. Um, you know, there, there are different reasons why that might be, and that can be helpful. But sometimes it's also really helpful to keep the narrative structure of a single gospel in mind. And as we're going through, rather than stopping each time to compare each passage with another gospel, you kind of get lost in the weeds in some ways when, that, when we do that, um, to rather to keep the thread going of the story that a specific gospel is trying to tell, because sometimes the most helpful way to look at it is to actually keep in mind what's happening in that gospel in the context there, where that could give us clues for why those differences are in place. In any case, that's kind of what we're going to do this time around. I know sometimes I do compare, um, but, but for this um, evening, we're going to keep Luke kind of in the center of our focus. So Jesus has just been arrested. Um, earlier, he had told them to be prepared, and he'd used an analogy about buying a sword, essentially, as, as, as a reference to being prepared. And then when he is arrested, they have a sword, and, and a disciple says pulls it out. Other Gospels say Peter, specifically, and cuts off um, someone's ear. And Jesus heals the person and basically says, like, don't do that and then says to these people have you come out as if i were a bandit we talked about that word bandit being a sort of violent insurrectionist similar to the two who are crucified on either side of jesus as bandits not just robbers or thieves or burglars but specifically a kind of violent revolutionary who um, would often live out in the wilderness and try and rebel against rome um so jesus has been arrested says, then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And now it's nighttime. And this would have been um, not just a bit weird. This would have been illegal. But they are basically taking him there to hold him until the morning when it will be slightly more legal. So throughout the stories of Jesus's trial and execution, you have varying degrees of things being legal and things being done by the book in order to arrest him and try him and execute him legally. And you have other instances in which they skirt around the rules. And so you kind of go back and forth. It's not wholly illegal and it's not wholly legal. It's almost like how things generally work. So they take him into the house, presumably. Um, but Peter was following at a distance. 
When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And now that would have been weird. He's kind of on this covert mission. He snuck in with the people who arrested him. He would have probably stood out um, just not being part of um, the high priest's household or soldiers, um, for one. Um, but he's he snuck into the courtyard. Then a servant girl, seeing him in the firelight, stared at him and said, This man was also with him. And it could be, again, like I said, he stands out. He's not a soldier. He's not a member of their household. Um, or it could be that as um, as a servant girl who lives in, in Jerusalem, she could have seen him with Jesus uh, throughout the time that they've been there. Um, she said, you are also one of them. But Peter said, um, woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else on seeing him said, you are also one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Then about an hour later, still another kept insisting, surely this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. At that moment, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And that's a kind of peculiar detail here. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So that detail of Jesus turning and looking at Peter is interesting. Um, not sure exactly what it says. If, if Jesus is in the house, you know, surely they're not all there together. Jesus is not in the courtyard necessarily. Um, but it could be that Jesus can see out a window. Maybe Peter can see in. Um, and then they kind of lock eyes. Or maybe this is just Jesus looking at Peter. And Peter is not necessarily aware of it. Um, but it's kind of a cinematic sort of detail um, that that Jesus looks at Peter um, as if you know he knows that this has happened, and and Peter freaks out a bit and and knows he's messed up, and he he leaves. Now the men who were holding Jesus began to mock him and beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, "Prophesy, who is it that struck you?" They kept heaping many other insults on him. Now, this is another part of the process of Jesus's arrest and trial where um, this is specifically illegal. They're not allowed by law to beat a prisoner who has not been convicted. There were provisions for um, soldiers to beat and, and for, you know, basically police to beat prisoners who were condemned to execution. Jesus has not been convicted yet. He's not been tried. He's only been arrested. So the fact that they're holding him and they're mocking him and beating him is specifically illegal. I wonder if we could think of a time in which police or soldiers have overstepped their bounds beyond legality to mistreat prisoners. Not that hard. So that they're doing this against the law, not surprising. Probably a fairly regular occurrence despite it being illegal. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, gathered together, and they brought him to their council. Now, this is the Sanhedrin. This is the big council of the Jewish people who meet and basically make the rules for everyone, and it's a mix of priests and elders and, and you know, scribes, all these different sorts of high-up elite people of, of the Jewish people. And this is one of those moments where they do kind of do it by the book. They do hold Jesus until day to hold the trial at day as holding any sort of trial at night was highly illegal. 
So they wait until the day, they assemble everyone, and it could also just be that they don't want to wake everyone up, and so they wait until the morning. But in any case, they wait till the day, they assemble the Sanhedrin, and they bring him before them. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. He replied, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I question you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And this is, again, that, that reference to Daniel 7 that's happened already before, this idea of the Son of Man coming in glory and being seated at the right hand of God, which is a pretty strong messianic reference, and also a reference that um, in the culture is talking about overcoming the foreign powers that um, occupy Israel. And all of them ask them, are you then the son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. And this is a, a, a construction that's a, not, it's not too tricky in Greek, but it is a bit odd um, for an English speaker. And, and so it gets translated in different ways in English Bibles. In the NRSV, it says, you say that I am. Um, in some Bibles, it just gets translated like, yes, I am. Um, but, but basically he's like, well, you're, you're saying that. Um, you're saying that I am. So Jesus is neither confirming nor denying. He's basically, well, you're saying that. And you can almost get the sense that he's saying, well, what does it matter what I say? You're hell bent on killing me. So you're saying that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard of ourselves from his own lips. And so they're basically taking this as an admission where he's like, well, you're, you say that I am. And he's not saying no. And so they take that as a sort of um, condemnation of himself. Into chapter 23. Then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate. So they go from the Sanhedrin again. They don't have the legal authority to execute him. And so now they take him before Pilate, the Roman governor, who does have the authority to um, order an execution. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. And now you notice that this is a different charge than what they are trying to get at earlier. They're trying to get at whether he's the Messiah, but they're specifically talking about his relationship to God. Whether he is the Son of Man, the Son of God, is, is, he, is he claiming that? That's the challenge that, or that's the, um, the accusation they have when it is a sort of Jewish court. When they take it into a Roman court, they take it out of this level of blasphemy and they put it in a sort of political nature. So perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes. We remember the story. He didn't tell them not to pay taxes. In fact, he kind of told them to pay taxes. He just said, you're already using Roman money with Caesar's face on it, where he calls himself God. Like, give him back that money. But they, they, you know, twist the, the, the truth here, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. And they translate that messiahship again away from a relationship to God, as in he's descended from David, anointed by God, to he's, he's a king, he's a political revolutionary. So those are the charges they bring to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, again, and, and this is a a slight, he doesn't say it the exact same way as he said there at the end of chapter 22, but he still basically says the same thing. Well, you, you say so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. But they were insistent and said, he stirs up the people by teaching throughout all of Judea from Galilee, where he began even to this place. 
And this gives Pilate an out. So he's kind of going, like, I can see what you're saying, but like, is it, so he's basically weighing up in his head. Is Jesus a lot of trouble on his own in which he's stirring up, you know, sort of political foment? Or is it going to be more trouble if I kill him? If I do something about it, am I going to cause more of a stashit than if I just leave it alone? And Pilate kind of wants to leave him alone. But then they say he's been teaching all over, even from Galilee. And then Pilate goes, oh, Galilee. So it says, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him off to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time, probably for Passover. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had been wanting to see him for a long time, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see him perform some sign. So I wonder if Herod's just after a bit of um, a show. He questioned him at some length, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Even Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. They then put, him, put an elegant robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. That same day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. Before this, they had been enemies. And I think basically they both kind of want to stay out of it. So you sort of have a, a three-legged stool of um, sort of rulers here. So you have the Sanhedrin, which is the elders, the scribes, priests, and the high priest. And they um, kind of rule by, um, the, by, by just like by the people giving them power. They kind of have a lot of say-so, but they have less political power specifically because that ultimately rests with both Pilate and then Herod, who is the Jewish king. Now, if you remember, Rome has granted them the Jewish king who rules basically by Rome's um, good graces. He's a, he's a vassal king. He's ultimately under Roman power, but he is Jewish. He is a Jewish king, Herod. Um, but he's granted to them because they've thrown up such a fuss about different ways that Rome has tried to rule. Rome eventually said, well, this will be easier. We'll let you have a king, Jewish king, um, but ultimately under our control. But that, that'll kind of placate them. And then you have Pilate, who is the direct Roman governor. And, and they sort of have overlapping but different jurisdictions. And then you have, so the Sanhedrin. So those are the three kind of legs of the stool. You have Herod, the Jewish king, Pilate, the Roman governor, and then the Sanhedrin. And so they're all kind of um, playing a bit of a game of chess. And Herod and Pilate both went out of this. And they're both like, this is too hot. I don't want it. Like, let's just leave it alone. Like, they're trying to kill this guy, Jesus. They're really mad about it. But like, this is going to be a mess. Let's stay out of it. Ultimately, they're not able to. But I wonder if that's kind of what bonds them, as Luke is saying, that they kind of become friends. Because maybe they're both going, oh my gosh, the Sanhedrin really want to kill this guy. Like, do you want to kill this guy? And Herod's like, no, I don't really want to kill this guy. It's going to be a lot of hassle. And Pilate's like, yeah, no, it's going to be a hassle. And I wonder if that's kind of what, what brings them together as friends. That's uh, where we'll uh, press pause here at the moment in Luke chapter 23, and we'll pick up again um, later on. So thanks for taking this little tour through um, Jewish political structures in, in the first century CE. Um, glad for you to come along with us today, and, and hope that, um, that you're enjoying this as we push ever closer to the end of the Gospel of Luke. Thanks for watching, and thanks for listening. Have a good week.